welcome to the first episode of the Geopolitical Puzzle. For this first episode, my guest is Shannon K. O'Neill. Shannon K. O'Neill is the Vice President, Deputy Director of Studies and Nelson and David Rockefeller Senior Fellow for Latin American Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's an expert on global trade, supply chains, Mexico, Latin America, and democracy. She's the author of the book The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter, published in October 2022. She explained the growth of three main global manufacturing and supply chain hubs and what they mean for the United States economy. In this episode, I discuss with Shannon O'Neill to analyze Latin America and its great opportunities in times of regionalization and geopolitics. Shannon, how are you? Welcome to this first episode of the Geopolitical Puzzle. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's an honor for this first episode. Shannon, let's split this conversation in two parts. One will be about a very interesting article about globalization in Latin America, and the second part will we will talk about your book, The Globalization Myth, Why Region Matter, uh, that you published in October 2022. So my first question is about this article that you published in American, America's Quarterly entitled Why Latin America Lost at Globalization and How It Can Win Now. You explain that globalization has brought a lot of economic growth. However, it has also brought inequality. Many regions and countries grew more or better in their own way. You mentioned that Latin America was left behind. What happened, Shannon? Would you mind elaborating a little bit in this point? Well, there are a lot of things that happened, right? But we look at these last 40 years, and partly I talk about this in the book, and what we have seen over these last 40 plus years, these are the years of you know, what we think of as hyper-globalization, what we see the rise of global supply chains and the like. And what's interesting over these last 40 years, when you start looking at trade data, is not all that many countries mm -hmm. actually participated. Um, there are only about 25 countries in the whole world over the last 40, 50 years that saw trade as part of their economy double or more, where they really transformed their economy. Um, so that's one thing. And very few, actually, Latin American countries were part of that. Mexico was part of it, but very few South American countries were part of that whole process. The second thing you see over these last 40, 50 years is not so much globalization, but real regionalization. So we talk a lot about global supply chains, especially after COVID, but really what you find around the world are much more robust and deep regional supply chains. So when you, know, you see an iPhone made in Asia, it's made across all of Asia. You don't see parts really going across the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean that go into that iPhone. Or when you see the making of a car, you see the making of any kind of electronics or even clothing, textiles, all these sorts of things. They're much more robust regional supply chains that countries trade with each other. And that's part of those who won at globalization. Many Asian countries, many European countries, Eastern European countries, North American countries, including Mexico. What we see in Latin America actually is not a lot of regionalization. And so while trade within Europe, about two thirds of trade, 60 plus percent stays within Europe, they make things together and buy them from each other. Trade in Asia now is 60 percent stays within Asia. Uh, when we look at especially South America, but Latin America, only about 15% of trade stays in the region. When, when South American nations trade, they go far away. Exactly. And I think one of the reasons why Latin American growth has been slow um, and, and we haven't seen prosperity grow, part of it is 
we haven't seen these countries turn to each other. We haven't seen the regionalization that allowed so many Asian or Eastern European countries to take off. Countries that, you know, 40 years ago were at the same GDP per capita, the same kind of level of, of overall wealth as you've seen in Latin American countries. When I read your article, an interesting point, that concerning point came up in the last 30 years, Latin America economies have become less diversified in their production. I must understand that some countries or most still depend on the, the primary, you know, industries like a mining, Peru mining and tourists, Chile, just mining and wines, but no more than that. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so Latin America is one of the parts of the world that has been suffering the most from what economists like to call premature deindustrialization. So losing your manufacturing sector before you became a high income economy. So you go to the United States, you go to Europe and, and services are the biggest part of these economies, but they're already wealthy countries. They've already made that, that, that leap and then all of a sudden they become a service oriented economy. And Latin American countries, along with African countries, are a group of countries that are really middle income countries. So they haven't yet become you know, a wealthier, you know, high income set of countries, but they're losing their manufacturing sector. And you know, Brazil is one of the countries that suffered most. We've seen almost a 10 percentage point drop of manufacturing as part of overall GDP. But so has Argentina, Peru, Chile. You can name lots of other countries. And as you as you rightly mentioned, they've become much more dependent on commodities. And even a country like Chile, which has worked hard to diversify where they, you know, they export wine and berries, you know, blueberries and all kinds of other agricultural products, you know, whatever they do and they manage, they have managed parts of that economy well over the last 40 years, but copper remains a huge, their number one export. They haven't been able right. to really diversify their economy in that sense. And so, you know, there's a question about why this is, um, and there are, there are a good number of reasons here, I would say, but one of the big ones I would is their inability to regionalize. You know, you look around the world and no country alone makes cars by themselves, not even the United States, right? The reason exactly. that the North American car industry is so strong and robust is because it is precisely a North American car industry. You know, the reason mm -hmm. that Japan or now Korea are such strong producers of cars because they make cars across Asia, Thailand, Indonesia, Vietnam, China are all part of that supply chain. And the same can be said with Europe. It's not just Germany that makes cars. They have parts all over right. Slovakia, Slovenia, Romania, France, other parts of, of Europe. And so Latin American countries, when they've tried to make ma machinery or other kinds of manufactured goods, have often tried to go by themselves, right? Brazil tries to do it alone. Or Argentina tries to do it alone. And, and the economies are just too small. There's not enough, you know, of a market base, there's not enough of a labor base, there's not enough of a capital base, natural resources, all the things that go in there. And so here again, I think this, this isolation of so many of the countries uh, in Latin America, their inability to work together um, means their markets are too small for a lot of big, big corporations or, or producers to come in. Shannon, since this podcast is about geopolitical issues, how this situation can affect, geopolitically speaking, uh, not having solid commercial ties between the countries in the region, because we already have, for example, Mercosur, we already have the Pacific Alliance, that you explain very well in your book. What are your thoughts about this? It's so critical. You know, the, the lack of regionalization or integration between Latin American nations isn't for a lack of trying. And if you go back in Latin American history from the 1960s on, there are you know, almost 20 different agreements that were all about trying to integrate the economy. So they're the ones you mentioned, there's, you know, Mercosur and the Pacific Alliance, but there's things like UNASUR, there used to be ALADI, there were all of these acronyms that were all basically 
political or social or infrastructure or commercial agreements to try to bind the nations together. And many of these, unfortunately, yes. ended up being mostly photo opportunities. People got together, there were summits, you know, people talked, um, but you never really saw it come together and put anything concrete on the ground. No. Um, and, you know, I'd say the latest one that we saw, we just saw with, you know, new presidents in in Brazil, in Chile, in, in Colombia, come together trying to revive UNASUR, you know, Lula and Petro and Boric all came together. Um, and it was supposed to have, you know, concrete infrastructure projects and the like, and it all got overshadowed with, you know, whether or not Maduro was considered, you know, an authoritarian leader or not in sort of the rhetoric. So it got overwhelmed by kind of the political optics rather than the real, the real ties that could have mattered. Um, and, you know, one of the challenges for Latin America as you look is, you know, and I would leave Mexico aside, but looking at the rest of the nations is one, they don't have a lot of free trade agreements, um, but two, the ones that they do have, and you sort of rightly already pointed out, um, they didn't quite have any teeth, right? So Mercosur, if you look at the, it was signed, you know, began in 1991, that first decade, it, it did pretty well. In fact, you saw trade between the members, Argentina, um, uh, Brazil, Paraguay, and Uruguay, you saw trade grow faster between the four countries than with the rest of the world. You saw some integration, particularly in the auto sector and, and a few other sectors. And then, you know, this is all history, but, you know, the Brazilian reality values and all of a sudden the countries, when, when push comes to shove and it gets a little bit harder, they put in hundreds of exemptions. So lots of the things, you know, protectionism comes back. And and it doesn't really have a lot of teeth. And today, those nations trade much less with each other um, than they did in the past. Less than 10% of trade is between that. So Mercosur really didn't have didn't fulfill the promise that you know it was supposed to be a customs union, and it never it never quite got there. Um, same thing with Pacific Alliance. There was a big announcement, and in the, in the 2010s, you know, the presidents would all get together. And today, I think it, you'd be hard pressed to find one president of all the members of of the Pacific Alliance who really care about it. Um, and so I think that's part of the challenge, too, is that when you when it is time for actually hard decisions to be made, for some of this integration to happen, for investments to be put forward, to build roads and rails and ports and infrastructure grids, um, when that happened or when that moment came, most Latin American countries decided not to. They went back to their domestic politics. Um, and when they did decide to trade, they looked much further away, either to China or to the United States or Europe or elsewhere. Shannon, speaking about investment, you know, I want to talk a little bit about opportunities. You know, Latin America in general have a great opportunities as well because of the climate change pledge that is around the, the world, you know, the emerging of green economies, so green fuels and clean energy technologies um, and the carbonization targets. What are your thoughts about that? Do you think that the lithium is going to be a crucial player in this kind of new, new era? I think there's two big opportunities with the green transition for, for Latin America. The first is that this is a region that is actually much further ahead, especially in electrification and green electrification, right? Renewable energy um, than many places around the world. You look at electricity grids, especially in South America, and most of them are some of the cleanest in the world, where majority, sometimes a vast majority of energy is already produced in clean ways. Um, and the real challenge in South America is often not uh, electrification and, and, and methane or, or, or kind of carbon emissions from that, the real challenge is deforestation. That's where some of the battles happen in, in South America. Um, so one is they're already a leader. So there's a lot to learn there and, and benefits for those who want to manufacture elsewhere where they can, you know, if they have climate pledges to meet big companies, well, they can find a clean electricity grid for their manufacturing in many countries in Latin America. So that's one benefit. And the other one that you point to is, you know, as we look at this green transition for the world, and that's going to be 
electric vehicle cars and large capacity batteries. That's going to be a whole host of kind of green technologies, green hydrogen and all those sorts of things. Lots of this depends on critical minerals. And when we look around the world where those critical minerals exist, you know, Latin America has a true bounty. The Western Hemisphere writ large has a true bounty. Um, now, challenges and, you know, the way people think about this is, you know, many of them exist in the Western Hemisphere, um, while the processing and refining does not exist in the Western Hemisphere. And that is the challenge that the United States government, you know, when they talk about national security or their Inflation Reduction Act, another thing is to make sure not just the mining happens, but the refining and processing. So you're not dependent on one country. And in many, in many of these minerals, it's China. China controls 80, 90, almost all of, all of the market here in refining. So that too is a place where potentially Latin American countries could both, they have the, they have the mining, they could also do the refining and processing and begin to climb that value added chain. Um, I would say, you know, to go back to my theme of regionalization, um, if you're trying to attract, you know, big world-class companies and investments and the like, thinking about it more broadly than just one country is also a way to go. So refining lithium for many countries is, is a way to go. Thinking about electricity grids or thinking about other kinds of green technologies across nations, electric vehicle car production, those things across nations will make Latin America much more attractive for the companies to think about putting, you know, putting strongholds within. Exactly, and more opportunity for, for creating new jobs. Let's discuss, uh, Shannon, to, about your book, The Globalization Myth, Why Region Married? It's a robust case for regionalization. Why hasn't the world globalized, in your opinion? Well, you know, it's interesting. Like, we have lots of, if you read the news and you listen, you know, watch TV, people say, oh, it's, it's hyper-globalization. The world is flat. People go all over the place. And, and the real data shows that that is just not the case. And, you know, one statistic which brings it home to me is, the average good that is traded, so when things are traded across borders, it travels 3,000 miles. Uh, and so that is the distance between sort of New York and Los Angeles, right? It doesn't get you to Shanghai. It doesn't get you to Berlin. It is much closer than you would think. So sure, there are global supply chains that traverse the world. There are companies that are global, right? Boeing is global, or you can find Coca-Cola in every single you know, town all around the world, right? It's not that they don't exist, they do. But alongside those hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of companies, when they go abroad, and they do go abroad, right? We have seen global trade jump from $2 trillion in 1980 to $22 trillion today. So a huge expanse. But when they went abroad, they didn't go so far away. Um, and one interesting uh, story here is that McKinsey, which is a big global consulting firm, and they do lots of reports, they surveyed about 600 companies and they found that when companies go abroad um, and go international, they tend to raise their profit margins. So companies get more profitable. But the further away they go, then their profits start to come back down. Um, so if you go to the country next door, your profits go up. If you go to countries on the other side of the world, your profits tend on average to go back down. In fact, McKinsey dubs this, the they call it the globalization penalty, um, that there's something about going far, far away that makes it more expensive for you to operate. And you know what that is, you know, for some things, it might be transportation costs, though overall shipping isn't, except in COVID years, shipping isn't all that expensive. Um, you know, technology allows us to talk to each other right. and do podcasts exactly. and things like this. So we're doing that right now across across places. But when you're making complex products, you're making, you know, manufacturing goods or other kinds of services, 
there is something that comes with distance that makes things more costly. You know, you're not on the same time zone. Maybe you don't speak the same language. Maybe your legal systems are different or your accounting systems are different. So you need more lawyers and, and others to help you with that process. Or maybe you just don't have that cultural connection, that trust that matters so much when you're doing complex things. And no matter how cheap the phone call is or the video is, it's still very difficult to make an airplane or, you know, do other kinds of very, you know, sophisticated things without problems. Before wrapping up, Shannon, my last question will be your best advice for the leaders in Latin America. As you mentioned in your book, there are only three emerging hubs, Asia, North America, and Europe. You know, my best advice here is it's for the CEOs and it's for the business community, but it's also for the policymakers because what Latin America nations and countries need to do, and it's both business and, and policymakers working together, is they need to invest in the things that matter for business in the 21st century. So that is education, human capital is as important as financial capital. They need to invest in infrastructure. Um, so to make logistics, the cost of bringing things in and going out of country to make those make those lower than they are, you know, in places where it's much where that is that can be a huge cost for businesses to get in and out. Um, they need to invest in the digital economy. So making sure connections are, are as affordable and, and as convenient as possible. Um, they need to invest in green green energy. You know, we've already Latin America already has it there, but they need to keep it and make sure they don't go back because companies really care about that. Um, so there's lots of things they need to do. They need to tie themselves to their neighbors. They need to think about regional projects, not just proximity. proximity. But what I would say is that right now, because of all kinds of factors, because of automation, because of AI, because of demographics, but especially because of geopolitics, we are seeing a once in a generation fluidity to global supply chain. So companies are out there looking for new places to put manufacturing facilities, to put services, to put production, to look for markets in ways that they have not done for 40 plus years. And so there is a opportunity for those countries that didn't benefit from the last round of globalization. And I put lots of Latin American nations among those. There's an opportunity today for those business leaders and policy leaders that that wasn't there a decade ago, but it needs to happen in the 2020s. It's not going to be, it's not going to be far from the future. It needs to happen now. Shannon, where people can contact you, where people can read these kind of articles you publish in different kind of outlets, where people can contact you, where people can get your book. So I am at the Council on Foreign Relations, so you can find me there. And I have a, a you know distribution list. If you want to get the articles I write, you can sign up there. And then the Globalization Myth is available at your bookstores, on Amazon, wherever you like to read. So you can find it all there. That's great. Shannon, I would like to say thank you for your time, for being my first guest on this new podcast, The Geopolitical Puzzle. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks, Juan Carlos, and I wish you great luck with the podcast. Thank you so much. I am Juan Carlos Giraldo from Boston, United States. Thank you so much, everyone.